don't listen to people like me, right? Don't ask me for advice or people like me, because compared to you, we're old. Like all my knowledge is in, in, in the past. You're like you're living in the future, you're in the now. So you probably know better about your market in this time and your team. Welcome to the Raw and Real podcast. Are you dreaming of changing your life through opening a business? Or are you curious what obstacles entrepreneurs had to overcome on their journey? Then you're in the right place. My name is Agnes Billig and I'm your host. This episode is sponsored by SandRequest, a really easy to use digital signature solution. They're a great company and have a lot to say about them. And I'll tell you later all about it, but let's first listen to my conversation with Boris. Hey everyone, welcome back to Raw and Real. Today's guest on the show is successful serial entrepreneur Boris Feldhäuser von Zante. He's the founder and CEO of The Next Web, which has with over 7.2 million visits, one of the top 10 blogs in the world. Part of it is The Next Web Conference, which is one of the biggest tech festivals in Europe. Hey Boris, thank you so much for being here. Hey, thank you for the invitation. Always, always. <laughs> I would first really like to talk about your background a little bit, because mm -hmm. I think that it's a really pivotal part of the story that you stopped going to school when you were 15. Could you tell us a little bit about the moment when you decided to stop? Yeah. I, so the story is I had bad eyesight, but they found out really late. I was practically blind and nobody knew. And I was dyslexic. So my joke is that like I couldn't write, read the writing on the wall. And even if I could read the writing on the wall, I still couldn't read it, right? It was just always uh, unlucky. And I was like quickly, like very distracted, always looking at other things. So uh, I think in school, like the, the first part of my life, they just thought that I was sort of retarded, right? It was just like never paying attention, didn't pick up in, uh, on anything. So it was a very stressful time in my parents life mm -hmm. and i think i was lucky that they gave me the impression that i, I was normal but the rest of the world was just crazy and later <laughs> yeah. I out, like oh maybe it's the other way around but so to me i was i was i think relatively happy but but i did feel incompatible with like school and then uh, so i went to a different school and then another one every time i sort of had to go like you know start the year all over so by the time i was 15 i was like two classes behind or, or three, I don't even remember. And I suddenly realized like this is going to take so much time and I'm so sort of tired of the whole thing. It's just, it feels so incompatible with who I am. And then I found out about the circus school and I was already like juggling and, and driving a unicycle. And then I thought, that's it. I'm just gonna, that's where I'm going to go. And so I dropped out of school, went to circus school, and like my intention was not to join the circus. I just thought it was a very interesting thing to learn. Mm -hmm. And I also thought like by the time I graduate from circus school, I, I will be old enough to apply to art school, which is what I really wanted. And that's what I did. So and I think that like the moment I decided like to drop out of school, there was a teacher and he, he tried to sort of scare me into in, into staying. And so he said, like, if you drop out now, you're placing yourself out of society and you're basically in the gutter. And then, like, 
there's nobody gonna help you like every you, you'll have to do everything yourself you, you'll never be able to apply for a job like it's all on you and he said it to scare me but it felt liberating because i just realized oh my god so from now on i get to decide how my life is gonna look like and of course yeah i'll have to work for it but it's mine you know it's my own decision and so i i felt very liberated and empowered at the age of 15 yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, and I just uh, and from that moment, I I always felt like this is my life. I get to design it. It's my every decision I I make is is mine. And of course, if then things fail, I have to live with it. But if it works out well, then it's also you know I I, I can also take credit for it. So I graduated art school and then went to uh, or a uh, school and then went uh, to art school. So do you have the feeling because usually society perceives it this way that. You kind of have to graduate. You, you know, yeah. have to go to the traditional path. That yeah. from then onwards, everything you do can just go up, and that's why I did that. Of course, at the time, I don't think I I thought about it that much, right? Mm -hmm. But I, I think the perception is that if you're smart and you work hard in school, then you graduate, and then it's sort of fine. And I think like the ability to do well in school is just one of the tools you have. And, but it's not a guarantee of anything, right? So, so persistence and creativity and a bunch of other things combined with how well you do in school, that's what decides what you're going to be like. And I, I thought, I have all these other things. I'm just awful with school. But I, I always felt like, yeah, but the other things, I'm, I'm just, well, I, I, I wasn't arrogant enough that I thought like, oh, I'm better or, or but I just felt like, oh, I have some talents, right? Mm -hmm. It's just, it's not school. Yeah. But, um, and I, like, I think this, yeah, like, if you, if you look at schools, like, uh, so what, one of my, uh, daughters, she's in, on a certain level, and then there's a level above her. And then a teacher asks her in school, like, do you feel, feel like less than the kids there? She's like, well, I'm a level lower. So, yeah. And so I had this conversation. I said, like, all right, so what they can do is like they're very like optimized for school thinking. But there's only one thing you need in life, right? So so how you use this tool, like if if, if somebody has a beautiful tool but they use it lousy, yeah, that's not gonna work, right? And if you have like maybe a lesser like your tool slightly less optimized than theirs, but you use it with like stamina and persistence and, and creativity, then you can do so much more than them so there's no like being in a lower level in school or not in school doesn't say anything right it's it's how you use that tool later that's going to make the difference and how do you explain that to your daughter then especially to kind of give her that feeling that there yeah. are so many more things in life which are important and skills that you need to train besides yeah, school. So I, I tell her these things. Like I, I, I tell her, like if, if you're young, then school is your world, right? And everything is, is set by the boundaries of, totally. of school. Yeah, that's yeah. that's that's what your context is for everything. And and I try to explain to her, like that, like the whole school is sort of optimized for listening to somebody in charge and doing what they say, right? That's what it's optimized for. So if, if that's maybe not your future, then like being the best in school doesn't say anything about like the rest of your life, right? Like, yeah. And of course, if you're great in school, well, of course, then there are opportunities for you. But actually, if you're awful in school, 
there is also a great opportunity for you. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> well, yeah, it just means that you're different than the rest. And, and of course, in the context of school, that means you're less. But I have a very different context, right? So, so I, I try to tell them that. And, and luckily, I think schools changed over time, right? So, so the teacher told her a similar thing. She said, like the, it's, it's not like lower level, medium level, high level. It's just a certain skill set, a different skill set, and another different skill set. And we optimize for each skill set. It's just perceived like in society, like, oh, oh, the highest level, oh, that's good, right? Yeah. Where they're like, no, it's just like even in um like when she was really young, there was a test that she failed. And it was a funny moment because we went to school and the teacher said, like, it's so weird because, like, she completely failed this test. And they were like, well, do you have an example of some of the questions? And she's like, well, here's one question. And it was, like, modes of transportation. And it was, like, a car, a bus, a plane, and what is it? Like a truck mm-hmm. or carrying stuff. Vehicles. Yeah. yeah. And mm-hmm. then you had to pick the one that stood out. And of course, everybody picked the plane because it flies and it drives. She had picked up the truck. And so I said, like, yeah, but it makes sense because all the other stuff is for transporting people. This is for transporting stuff. So, like, and then the teacher went, like, oh. And then my girlfriend said, like, no, these are all red and the truck is green. So maybe she picked the color. Uh And so then we invited her in. Like, why did you? And then she said, well, it's clear that, like, the truck is like drawn with a pencil and the rest with a pen. So like, oh. <laughs> like how can you not see the difference? Yeah. And it was something like that. So, so we all had a very different interpretation of that thing. And then the conclusion of the teacher was like, oh, we got to really reevaluate how we do this, these tests and ask children, like, why did you pick what you picked? Because it might be interesting. And then she said, so, so the conclusion is like, it's not that she's not good at the test. It's just that she's very different. Yeah. But like society has great use for people who are very different, right? That's not that's not a problem. That's actually interesting. Yeah, yeah. So, so I'm I'm dyslexic. So one of the the they've now find found out that if you want to sort of solve dyslexia, you gotta let uh, young children juggle. So if they juggle, oh yeah, they combine sort of the left and the right part of the brain with an activity and if you do that long enough it, it really helps which i didn't know but happened to but you were on the right path i was on the right path uh, but i also so they also know that because if you're dyslexic you'll you from a young age you'll you'll try to compensate for which is basically a handicap so what i did uh, like my handwriting is awful and teachers could never read my handwriting which is a typical typical dyslexia uh, issue and so I asked them, is it okay if I, if I use a typewriter? And then they said, do you ha- have a typewriter? And I'm like, no, but I'll, I'll, I'll find one. Yeah. So, um, and then I found one in the trash and it was broken, but I fixed it. So, and then I started collecting more typewriters and picked them apart and built new stuff from it. So, and then I, I was always allowed to type my, so I learned to type on, in a, on a young age. And, and how did you fix them? Yeah, so I would just take them apart and ask my father, like, how does it work? And why does it work? Okay. And, uh-huh. and, uh, and, and then uh, I found, like, a factory that, that fixed and, and sold typewriters. And I asked them to teach me how to fix it. And, and that's a very typical, like, dyslexia 
thing where you'll you're always looking for solutions to problems. Mm-hmm. That's actually a very interesting skill to have, right? So Totally. Yeah, if, if you have a company, <laughs> yeah. somebody comes up and they're like, I fix problems. Mm-hmm. They're like, yes, you're hired. You can start tomorrow <laughs> because there are always problems, right? So nowadays when I meet parents and they say, oh, yeah, we have some, we're worried about our children because one of them has just been diagnosed as being dyslexic i say congratulations (laughs) this is not this is gonna be great like you 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 have sort of a like a like a superhuman chance right because they're different than anybody else and they're gonna be very like solution oriented the rest of their life which is a great skill to have right so the hard part is it's going to be difficult for them the first 20 years right that's because they have to work extra hard at developing this skill but if you have a talent at playing piano, well, then the first 20 years are also going to be really hard because you'll work hard at developing this talent, right? So so I think dyslexia, one day that will be, everybody will say, oh, dyslexic, oh, congratulations, <laughs> because that's a skill set that's, you know, gonna, it's going to give you like a competitive edge yeah. for the rest of your life. So then in 1997, you started your first company, mm, right? Yeah. B3.com, Redirect Services. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit, like, where did you get the courage from to start a company? So I, I don't think it, I don't, it didn't feel courageous at all. Because you got to imagine, so in, I think, 1995 was the first time I, I went online. And the first thing I thought was, shit, I'm too late. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> so, so uh, because I grew up with sort of in the computer like the, the 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 BC revolution, right? But I was too young to play a role. But uh, I I felt the excitement. I'm like, oh, oh my god, right? The, the start of Apple, and my father told like told me the stories about Steve Jobs, and it was just all super exciting. And I just thought like, oh my god, if I would have born early, I played <laughs> yeah. a role there. Yeah. Then the internet came along, and then 1995, and I'm like, oh shit, I missed another one, right? This is a new thing. This is clearly a new thing. I'm too late. Now, looking back, of course, that was very much on time and very early, but that was the first emotion. So from that moment, it almost felt like a race to catch up, right? So I wanted to do something. I was very eager to, to try stuff. And, and so from the first moment, like I went online and like, I think was online for an hour and then I disconnected and drove my bicycle into town to the, the bookstore to find like a book about, uh, HTML. I, I'm like, I gotta learn this thing. I, I, I gotta, learn how to create so I can play a role. And so I, I learned that and then I learned how to code a little bit and then I quickly started building my own stuff and reaching out to other people like, how do you build stuff online? And, and so, especially by now, that's like way easier with the YouTube tutorials everywhere. And Yeah, I, I actually read a book, right? Books, I read books about uh, development and these, this was just HTML 1.0, right? It was like nothing was possible. So it was a, like a short book. <laughs> but... Uh, but it was just like I, I very like the the first time I dialed into the internet, like the sound of the modem. Modem, like I I remember where I was. I remember the temperature. I, I remember where I was sitting. That like everything. That was just such a incredible moment um, that I thought like there's now a whole new world opening up for me, where which is exciting and new, and I can play a role. And and um, that was the, like the best feeling ever. So. I did a few things online and there were always like interesting experiments and I knew that like my 
my creativity and, and uh, my willingness to just work 24 hours a day, I knew there was something there, right? I, I'm like, I have everything I need to do something. Now I just got to find the something. And then when this came along, I thought like, oh, this is, this is the opportunity. Yeah. And so, so it, it didn't feel like, like courageous doesn't, like, it doesn't feel like that at all. It was just a great relief that I found a thing. That okay. I could yeah. Put all my energy and, and, uh, and that's the other thing, of course, because like when the teacher said, you're now sort of down in the gutter. Yeah. For me, it always felt like the only way is up. I have nothing to lose. Right. There's no, job security that i'm sacrificing <laughs> uh, like i can do anything i want there's yeah. no downside so that's the other thing right if if you so my my joke is always that so that first company i sold after two years and then i sold it for for millions so i was like a paper millionaire mm -hmm. and then two years later i lost everything so in the in the bubble and so my joke is always like if you ever get the chance to become rich then you should totally do it because it's great fun and then it's also a great experience to lose everything because then this is almost like, like if, if you do, if, if you're in sports, right? If you're a competitive uh, athlete or something, then you got to know how it is to win and you got to know how it is to lose. So you, you got the full spectrum. And then after you've lost a few times and you won a few times, then you can really perform. And so I think that becoming rich. And then enjoying that and, 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 but also seeing the downsides and then losing everything and, and being thrown sort of back onto myself and then realizing like, all right, I got to start, start all over from nothing, less than nothing. But I also realized like, oh, actually I'm still happy, right? I'm, I'm still motivated. I'm still interested in what's, what's happening. So, so actually the money really doesn't matter, right? It, it, it really doesn't matter for like my happiness. And obviously it's nicer to have money than not have money. Yeah. But like on a day, like today's a beautiful day, right? Yeah, true. Yeah. And, and you can enjoy it. Like if you're on a bicycle and you're driving around and you're like, oh, I have no money, but ah, it's really a beautiful day, right? Well, it doesn't matter if, if you're rich or poor, like it's just a beautiful day. And you sold the company for like 21 million gulden back then, right? Yeah, yeah. Which is around 10,000, uh, 10 million euros, yeah. I guess. And then you went back to really nothing. I yeah. mean, there must have been like so intense that moment yeah. when it all went to zero, kind of. Yeah. Can, yeah so can you tell us a little bit what were your emotions were and, and also maybe like how your surrounding also reacted? Because I think yeah. that must have been really intense. Yeah, it was. So uh, like, if people know you, you're rich, then you, you become a lot more interesting. So, yeah, so I, I just had like more friends than ever. And then as soon as it started becoming clear, like, oh, actually all the money is evaporating because like this is the it's a economic uh, crisis and everything. I just started seeing that some people became less interesting, sort of faded away and like professionally, but also personally. And so there was a very sobering moment where you're like, oh, ah, well, this is like the perfect <laughs> test, right? And then there were also like the friends who didn't care about any of that, right? Where it's just like, no, I, like we're friends. There's no. Yeah. So it was a very, yeah, great learning experience. Mm. Not an easy one, right? So, and there were moments where like I remember in the morning, 
being in bed in the house I can afford and just like waking up in the morning and like, what's the use, right? So like, I, I get nothing to get up for. Like there's just, yeah. so of course I, I went through that. And how did you go through that? Because I think especially if you're in the moment, it's just so hard yeah. to then move forward, especially after such an experience. Yeah, yeah. So the thing was, so uh, people sometimes ask me like, uh, oh, don't you regret selling then your shares when they were still? I'm like, well, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, of course. Like, but that's the same as saying like, oh, you should always sell your shares at the highest points. Like, yeah. Well, yeah. Thank you for your advice. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's useful. Good to know. Yeah. Yeah. So, but it's sort of the same as like I remember looking at Apple stock when they were at eight dollars. I'm talking to a banker and I think like that's very undervalued. And yeah, you should like, buy yeah, that. <laughs> yeah, I should buy, maybe I should buy some. And he's like, well, they could also go to four or two or one. You but like you don't know. Yeah. And then they went to like sixteen hundred. Right. <laughs> so that would have been the best investment ever. Yeah. But yeah, you don't know, right? That's, of course. Yeah, and I think my biggest learning in that time is that so a lot of entrepreneurs if they sell their company and they come into money they think like oh that must mean that i'm very smart and know a lot about everything and if you have a lot of shares and you're like i have a lot of shares obviously i know a lot about the stock market mm -hmm. because i have a lot of shares mm -hmm. these things are not related right which is logical but th that's something you gotta also experience and learn and my thinking was I'm part of a group of people who understands the internet and the web, and we understand that this is going to change the world. And then, and th this thinking was very fundamental, right? There was not a doubt in my mind that the internet was going to change the world. And then at the same time, I saw, saw the stock market sort of decline. And then I'm like, that doesn't make sense. Mm. Like, it's clearly going there. Why is this? This is just. It's got nothing to do with each other. Mm -hmm. And so I just thought like, well, there's just no logic. So like the only way I could have sold those shares is if I would have lost my faith in the internet. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that was just like unthinkable. So like the only way that could have happened is if I would have turned myself from an optimist in like a pessimist. And I, I would rather be poor than <laughs> be a pessimist. So there's just, yeah, so that's unthinkable and worth it, right? So, and, and of course, the internet did change everything and it's still changing everything. And I built a new career after mm -hmm. that. So in that sense, no, I don't regret not selling the shares, mm -hmm. right? So financially, it would have been better if I would have. But I couldn't because I had faith in or, or just this belief that this was going to change the world. So, yeah, I'm happy that I, it's a sacrifice I had to make, make, and it's fine. And what was the thing that was like pushing you forward to get up again and start something new? After disbelief. This, disbelief. Yeah, disbelief. I just thought like at one point I, I, I had to learn sort of to, to disconnect the two, right? So mm. I'm like, all right, the world economy which my shares are a part of, is a separate thing. I thought it was connected, but it's not. Mm -hmm. There's no logic between the two. So I got to ignore that and just get to work and sort of invest my time and 
I had no money left, so my time and my intellect and my my in, in building the next thing. And that's how I got started again and started building new stuff. Um, yeah. I just wanted to tell you a little bit about Sinoquest. They're a really great platform if you're looking for an easy and affordable way to get your documents signed so you don't have to worry about printing and scanning them. SignRequest genuinely cares about fixing your problems. I can vouch for them, so make sure to check them out at signrequest.com. And what were the mistakes that you made early on that helped your performance later on? So I think one mistake that everybody makes, and same for me, is that like in the beginning, you get the impression that the rest of the world's no world knows what they're doing and you're just an amateur who doesn't understand things. And then slowly over time, you start understanding nobody else knows what they're doing either. <laughs> and you're probably the expert. And this is a thing that I still like realize when I talk to entrepreneurs, young entrepreneurs and, and grown-ups. Like if you do a new thing, you're always like, all right, who is the expert? And like probably you, right? You think that you're just new. But probably if you spend like one day looking into things, you're now the expert. So, and, and this is a thing that I really had to learn because in the beginning, you're always, all right, I want to do this thing. How do people do this thing? And that's actually a question you never have to ask yourself, right? Because the, the more interesting thing is like, if you would, without previous knowledge, would build a new thing, probably the best thing is just to think from yeah, use your feeling, your intuition, your own knowledge and build the thing as you would envision it. And then other people who will see it might see it and think like, oh my God, you're doing it so different than everybody else that this is actually interesting, right? So I think that's the, like there's a comedian and he, like they asked him, what advice would you give your younger self? Mm -hmm. And he said, like, I would tell my younger self, nobody else knows what they're doing either. And I think that's the strongest life advice you can give everybody. I, I like if uh, entrepreneurs ask me for advice, I, like my first advice is all that is always <laughs> all that. Yeah, all that <laughs> is uh, always don't listen to people like me. Right? Don't ask me for advice or people like me because compared to you, we're old. Like all my knowledge is in in the past. Your like you're living in the future, you're in the now. So you probably know better about your market in this time and your team. And, and it's, it would be a mistake to, to trust me too much, right? So, so ignore my advice. That's my advice. <laughs> but don't you think that especially because you're more experienced, you just like, you know, learned a lot that based on history, you can also foresee certain patterns that repeat? A little bit. But on the other hand, so they say that it's important to have young people in, in, in your company. And the reason for that is that they don't know what doesn't work yet. So if you come into a company and a young, young person says like, hey, shall we try this? And all the old people say like, no, we tried that, it doesn't work. But the young people don't know that. And maybe if they try it, they put more energy into it. The world has changed. Maybe they have, maybe they have a new insight. Mm -hmm. So they don't know about all the experience. That's actually just holding you back. So this sort of naive, no experience is actually very powerful, right? 
So what I've said in the past like, is, is uh, never let experience stand in the way of progress. But, but I have experience and it is standing in the way of progress, <laughs> right? So like the, the ability of a young person to just dive in head first without thinking about the risks, without thinking, does this work? Has it been tried before? But just do it. That's actually extremely powerful. Something I'm jealous of. <laughs> I, I would like to be back where I started without the experience and just, and, and only knowing like nobody else knows what they're doing either. Just go do it. Right? Don't hold back. Just, just go. And then in 2006, you started the next web, right? Yeah. Because you were looking for a conference, you wanted to launch your own startup, but then you couldn't afford it. So you came up with the idea to start your own, right? Yeah. So uh, what were the obstacles in the beginning that you had to face when you started TMW? So the good thing is that we were in a situation where we wanted to do this thing and we really didn't have anything to lose because our plan was not to build a profitable conference business. We just thought if it's break even or even loss making, we don't care because we only care about launching our startup. So we just want to have a conference that everybody loves and then they'll see our startup, which is just one of the main sponsors. That's it. Right. So, and, and then almost by accident, we organized the conference that everybody really liked because that was our only focus. We didn't think like we got to make money. No, it's just like, no, we don't care. We just want to have the best conference. And then by building a quality product, people were willing to pay for it. So looking back, that was actually a great strategy, right? So instead of focusing on like, ooh, we got to put the sponsors on stage because we got to make money, which is like, no, no sponsors on stage. That would be boring, right? So we, we just got to get the best speakers in the world that we always wanted to meet. <laughs> so I think like looking back, it's a, it's, a, it's a great strategy, except it wasn't a strategy. It was sort of a accidental. Yeah. And a great example of like, Probably if I worked, would start today, I would start with, yeah, but wait a minute, what are the financials and does it make sense and mm -hmm. how much time? And but we didn't think about that. We just thought about, no, let's just do it. So with what did you start? With a conference. So, so. We, because you said you wouldn't take into account now the financials. So what was it yeah. like the main focus and in the beginning, the speakers, for example, or. Yeah. So we thought very naively. I, I, I think my partner never had been to a conference, right? He didn't even know what a conference was. And I had been to one. So we thought like, all right, what is a great conference? We're like, well, we're just going to find the most inspiring people in the world and ask them to do a talk. And so they all said, like, oh, do you need the presentation like two weeks in advance? We're like, what? No, why? Why would we? But like, how, no, did, how did you convince them without any experience? Well, that's the cool thing as well, that it was very clear that we were not a conference business that invited them formally, right? So it was just like my network that I had built up over the years, and we had our own startup, and we had some... Like the startup we had was sort of sexy and interesting and everybody was talking about it and, and we were the people behind it. So we were already talking to people and like, oh yeah, I've heard of the, like you've got the interesting startups that nobody really knows what they're doing. That's sort of exciting. And <laughs> and so so we were able to attract like, yeah, great speakers and, and, and the audience as well. Like everybody like, oh, this is going to be exciting because like it's, it's the, the funny 
party guys that are just doing business with a smile and it's probably going to be like a fun mm -hmm. thing to go to. So, so that all worked for us. Like one example is that we didn't like, we did everything extremely low budget and, and just, it's very normal to take speakers to a speaker dinner, but that would be expensive. So then we decided let's just cook for them ourselves. So we invited all the speakers to my house, which was very stressful because we had the conference the next day. But then in the evening we had to tell like everybody, yeah, sorry, we gotta go because we gotta make dinner for the speakers. <laughs> like, yeah, but we gotta put all the chairs in. Like, yeah, sorry, we gotta go. But then because we were making the dinner ourselves, then this was such a personal connection mm -hmm. to the speakers who were now like doing the dishes, dishes in the kitchen, whereas in a the restaurant they would just like, you know, after dinner, just say, oh, yeah, yeah, I got to go to bed. Right? But now everybody got drunk and we did the dishes and we had to... So it was just a very informal and a great like personal connection. And that helps again at the conference, right? Because everybody realized like, all right, this is personal. This is just... Boris and Patrick, like, this is not a big company that doesn't really care. No, this is... So you put a lot of the human element in there. Yes, totally. Yeah, and we still do. Like, that's a big focus in the companies, like the, the humanity in tech. It's, uh, like, it's not about the... Like, if, if we talk about technology or digital, you think about the... We're in the software and the ones and the zeros and the bits and the bytes. And then we say, like, no, no. That like technology and digital is, is about humanity, right? The, the impacts on humans and humanity and society. That's actually what's interesting, right? So, and I think that's like that human aspect is, is, has always been our competitive edge, right? Everything we do is much more about the, yeah, it's personal, really. Like even our stories, right? So we tell the writers, uh, I think there are like 5,000 new apps in the app store every day. That's all news. That's all irrelevant, right? So, so you're not you're not right about that. Yeah, it's a very high number. <laughs> yeah. So it's just like news is like no longer the thing. But if there's an app, if you tell me about an app that's a year old but it saved your life, that's the app I want to read about. Mm -hmm. Right? That's the thing that like if there's something life changing, it doesn't matter if it's an old old app. This is a new story because it's personal. It's mm -hmm. human. So that's the stories we look for like mm -hmm. what, what is the what is the the biggest impact on humanity and sometimes that's negative as well right so if there's a an awful thing you want to know like the the human story and you have a newsletter that you publish weekly and i read that you published an article where you wrote that you were supposed to go to india along the king and queen to meet the president and you forgot the visa and then you were yeah. at the airport and you realized like can you tell us a little bit about that yeah, that was, of course, a very painful <laughs> moment because it was a very high-profile trip. And I just arrived at the airport and uh, I thought, I'll ask if there's an upgrade because I just a uh, regular seat and it's a long uh, trip. So I'm like, well, maybe. So I went to the check-in account. Uh, I'm like, I'm already checked in, but could you check uh, for an upgrade? So I said, yeah, can we have your passport? And she browses through the passport. And she's like, there's no visa in your passport. I'm like, no, no, it's fine. I'll go to India. <laughs> well. You need a visa. I'm like, are you sure? <laughs> like, I assume somebody would have told me if I needed a visa. I'm like, well, I'm pretty sure because this is my job. So I'm like, oh my God. And then that would have take four days to get a visa. And then like, just like an hour later, I just came to the realization, I'm not going to India. <laughs> it's just <laughs> like, I got the ticket, I got the hotel. 
but uh, yeah, this is just not, not going to happen. So, and then of course I thought about it and realized like there are, like if, if, if you're running a business, you're always, you can't know everything, right? So you got to decide where's your focus. And sometimes it's very much on the details and some, some of the times it's much more like high level strategic. And of course the, the downside of being like, if you only focus on the, the bigger issues, then you miss some of the details. If you only focus on the details, you miss some of the, so. So it's a paradox. <laughs> it's a paradox. And at one point you've got to decide. And then with that comes that you might miss an essential detail and not go to India. And so, so because of course I analyzed the whole problem, like how did this happen? And then I realized, oh, I, I rem now I remember, like because the trip was very well organized, but there were a lot of emails, and I very consciously remember a moment where I thought, like, there are now so many emails, I'm gonna ignore them because it's just too much, mm -hmm. and if it's important enough, it will rise to the top but the one thing didn't rise to the top about the visa and that and then i remember like this is a conscious decision and one of the risks that i have to accept about the way i work right this, this is just uh, i can't complain about that this is happening because it was a conscious choice it's a risk i choose to accept and this is now the downside so it was an, an interesting moment yeah and i write a weekly yeah yeah and so I got a, a more than a hundred thousand subscribers, and I write the weekly every week, and I I always write something new. So I I don't want to go into my past and go back to like a life lesson, but I always write about something I learned that week, which is a very very challenging uh, thing, of course. Yeah, I I think it's just so cool that you were open enough to share that mm. because I think a lot of people wouldn't because they oh, would be yeah. too embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't there, <laughs> but that's uh, another life lesson I learned. So, uh, my second company I sold to a big company, and then I ended up like having to integrate the company in the big mm -hmm. company. And in a big company, like the the lingo is very different than in a small company. And I would be in a meeting with all these managers that were all ten years older or twenty years older than I am. All seemed like they were very knowledgeable and. They would use words that I just didn't know mm. or, or like abbreviations or, or stuff. And so I would sit in these meetings just completely overwhelmed. And then at one point I, I thought like, I'm just going to ask, right? So there was a presentation, like 14 people in the room and it was talking. And then I said, I don't actually know what that means. And then the like, person presenting, it was like, you don't know what it means. And then suddenly like three other people said like, I actually also don't know what that really? means. Really? Yeah. <laughs> and then I'm like, why didn't you ask? Why, why, why? <laughs> but then they explained it. And then I, I learned something. And I'm like, this works. I'm going to do this more often. So I made it a, ha a habit mm -hmm. to always ask the stupid question. How did you overcome that barrier? Because I think a lot of people have that barrier that they don't. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think that moment i just felt like i had nothing to lose and i always feel like i have nothing to lose right so because i've lost everything i'm like losing everything is actually not that bad so, right? so you think that that feeling of like when you lost it all because of the millions basically that that kind of is still in you and that drives you in these several situations? moments yeah so of course like 
dropping out of schools, mm-hmm. uh, uh, yeah, dropping out of school also gave me that, yeah, feeling like, mm-hmm. oh, wait a minute. I like, according to the rest of the world, I'm now the lowest of the lowest in the gutter. Not a chance that I'll ever achieve anything, which means that even if I achieve a small thing, I'm still ahead, right? So that felt like I got nothing to lose. It's, uh, everything is upside. And then losing the company and all my money was the same uh, feeling where I'm like, right, back to zero. I'm still happy. So apparently losing everything, well, I, I, I can survive that. That's just fine. So yeah, that almost makes you bulletproof. And then, so what I started noticing is that if you, if you ask the stupid questions, if you show your, your vulnerability, that actually comes across as very strong. Mm-hmm. Which is also a paradox. So by showing your weakness, totally, you actually come across as very strong and powerful. So I made it a habit of if I screw up, I, I'm just open about it, and then people respect you more for it. So about a year ago, I had the, not a real depression, but I was like slightly depressed. Right, mm-hmm. I was just I, I felt like. Um, I just didn't want to go to the office. And so I thought I'll just stay home. And uh, and I was just unhappy and, and not motivated. But uh, was there a certain trigger for that? No, not really. And I I think I have it maybe once a quarter, once every six months, there's just a moment where it's just like, oh. Like I a cycle. <laughs> yeah. It's just, I think most people have a similar thing, right? Mm-hmm. Where, where you just, you, you can't just always be your happy self. Sometimes you're just down and, like uh, one song on the radio will make you cry, <laughs> yeah. right? It's just a, a thing. And so I stayed home and I, like at the office, I said, I'm sick. And then a week later, I was talking to somebody and they said, uh, did you have a flu or something? And in the moment, I just thought like, oh, I, I'm just going to be honest. And so I said, no, I was just depressed. I was just demotivated. I, did, I hated my work and my life. So I stayed in bed <laughs> and cried. And they're like, oh, I have that too. And uh, so I'm like, oh. Really? Uh, how often? It's like, well, once every six months or something. I'm like, so, so what do you do? And then so she, she said, well, I found out, like, I, I just take the train because of my parents. And then my mother makes me soup or something. And then I just feel better. And then I, I can deal with life again. Mm-hmm. And then I spoke to someone else and they say, oh, I, I, I go for a walk. Like, just a long walk. Mm-hmm. Just like a two-hour walk. Doesn't even matter where. So that's how I get up my energy. So I started then at one point I thought like I'm just going to write this story internally for the whole company so I said listen I got something to admit I said I was sick I was actually not sick I was just depressed and if you feel the same you're not alone and so several people in the company came forward and they said like I'm so happy that you made this something that we can now discuss because I have this and some people have it like every month and they're like I'm just completely depressed I I get it I come to the office the only thing I do is just open and close emails and try not to cry behind my desk. <laughs> I'm like, well, then don't come to the office, please. Right? Nobody, nobody wins if you feel like that. The next time, give me a call. We'll go for a walk together or a swim or, or to your parents, or, right? Or I'll make you soup. Or, and then people in the company said, could you publish it online? So, so I did. And then like thousands, seriously, thousands of people, yeah, wow. they, they came forward and they said, like, I'm so glad that uh, because this is a, uh, like a thing like most people wouldn't be honest about right? yeah totally people yeah. don't want to just talk about it no no and and then i'm like well it, it would be nice if we could though right yeah so, 
and since then so i made a habit of like being more open of about like how i feel or what i'm thinking about and so i had these moments where like i remember one meeting a few months later where it was like the management team uh, and some other people we had to present something and then at, at the beginning of the meeting i just said i just said like I'm just in an awful mood, right? So I, I think if I'm going to present this thing to you, I'm just going to cry. So would you mind? And I said to someone, would you mind doing the presentation for me? I'm just going to sit in the back. I'll listen. And everybody was like, <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, that's fine, right? It's just, uh, do you want a cup of tea? I'm like, no, no, no tea. No, really. But, uh, and it's nice actually, right? And and I think the reason I'm I'm saying it because it's a it's the paradox right if yeah. you feel like oh i i, I always got to be tough and, and like i know what i'm doing and and like i understand everything but actually if you let it go you're honest about the moments where you're demotivated or just confused or that that's actually very strong yeah and you learn something so and during an interview you mentioned that part of being an entrepreneur is embracing failure and it becomes part of the process. So yeah. how can you like give someone the advice to embrace failure? Like if they have a really barrier yeah. to do that. So and... There was one moment we had, this is years ago, I had a startup and we raised some funding. Then we launched it. Then it didn't work. And six months later, I went back to the investors and I said, half the money is left. I can either spend it for another six months then we're out of money it doesn't work or we can stop the company next week and i give you back the money that i still have left and uh, investors and i thought they were going to be angry but they were super happy right they said it's it's so great that you can be honest and like half the money back is, is, is great and if you ever do another thing we'll invest again so it was great but then later i talked to a journalist and he said so do you regret doing that because it didn't work and i said no because i successfully showed that it didn't work like i would have regretted it if i would have never tried it because then i would have still thought it might still work now we know it doesn't work yeah like if if you do an experiment in science and the result is not what you expected this is not failure you're learning something right so and that's a very fundamental way of looking at things right so if you do something and, and you fail, well, obviously you would have rather succeeded, but at least you tried and you can take the next step. So that's a like a huge difference between working in a big company mm-hmm. where like usually you get ahead by not making mistakes, right? That that's how you which makes sense, right? So if, if you have a startup, everything is new, so you gotta find everything out. You can't find out without making mistakes. So this is part of the culture. And at one point you find out this works. So then you're going to try to do the thing that works as perfectly as possible. So you find people who are just good at managing processes. And of course, if you manage the process, you don't want to make mistakes. So a big company is not optimized for failure at all. They're optimized for success. And a small company, it's like we're not looking for failure, but it's totally part of the process. You, You can't do new stuff without failing. So... And this is a thing that most big companies don't understand. They're like, oh, yeah, my people are very risk averse and we want to be innovative too. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, <laughs> actually very logical, right? <laughs> because this is what you're optimized for, for doing the process and having it not fail. So, 
And how do you optimize the next web to, yeah, be to willing, yeah, to yeah. be willing to take risks? And so when people, uh, I'll give you the example of writers. So when writer starts, I say there are a few things you gotta know. It's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. If you <clears throat> if you fail, I look forward to apologizing on your behalf, and I'm the shit umbrella. <laughs> so and these things are all important. So so. If if you want your writers to always be like to write interesting stuff about maybe risky things, then you gotta accept that sometimes they'll go over the line. And if you're pushing them to like, push the limit, but you punish them if they go over the line, then they'll never push for for change, right? So I, I think most companies they talk more about the risk taking. But they don't provide the security. What happens if you fail? Yeah. So that's what I focus on. So, and the example is that, like this happens all the time, and and and, and it, it, I actually take that wall. So if there's a problem that they can't handle themselves, and they say like, "Oh my God, there's somebody now really angry," I'm like, "Oh, this is now my turn, right? Relax. I've got your back. I'm the shit umbrella. I'm gonna <laughs> fix this." And then I do, and. Like a few years ago, somebody made a mistake. There was a new person. They were with us for, I think, a month. And they made a mistake. And it had a huge impact, like sent the wrong message to like 300,000 people. And then like the easy thing would be to like, oh, you screwed up. That's bad for you. Never screw up again. But I went there and i like, congratulations, right? This is amazing. You screwed up. You learned from it. This is part of doing business. Like, I don't want you to work on it for a month and then not make a mistake. I'd rather have you work on it a week. And I accept that then every now and then there are mistakes. So let's think together on how we're going to make the best of this mistake. And then I said, actually, it's a great opportunity because now we have another chance to contact these 300,000 people, apologize, which will make us seem very human. And now we have their attention to ask them something else. So it's actually great, right? It's just an opportunity to improve uh, things. Yeah, I think it's a great way to change the perspective. Me too. And I think this is the, like so many companies say like, yeah, we want to take risk. And, uh, but then, you know, like, yeah, but if, all right, but if the manager, you say you want to take risk, but if this manager then screws up, well, yeah, there got to be consequences. Yeah. Right. At the very least, they're not going to make a promotion because we yeah. want to be successful. Like, well, then they're not going to take a risk. That's how simple it is. You should make them do the thing and say, whether you win or lose, you're going to get a promotion. That's the thing. Right? Then you can take a risk. But that's not how big companies work. That's just not the way. Do you have any ideas how we can change that? Well, I think it starts with this understanding, right? Mm -hmm. So if you understand my company is big and our focus and the whole culture is on making the process work well. So we're staying away from risk. That's, that's just the culture. So if I then want to create something new, either I got to change the whole culture and accept that the process no longer is perfect or just not do it, which is also fine. Like, like I once bumped into uh, an investor on the street and uh, he said, hey, we just acquired a newspaper, like a local newspaper. So I'm like, like paper? Like, yeah, yeah. I'm like, well, but that's like a dying business, right? <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah, 15 years and it's over. And I'm like, so why did you invest? And he said, like, well, because for the next 15 years, we're going to make a lot of money. And I was just like, 
oh my god that's just so not how i'm thinking right so yeah. for me if you you always try to improve things but there are some businesses that maybe it's a better business strategy to accept we're a dying business our market is shrinking but the shrinking markets were going to be the best solution for for as long as it lasts mm. instead of every company saying no we got to reinvent ourselves and mm. put all our money in something new where like well is that realistic like do you have sort of the inventor the innovation mindset can you change your business like is that really the like at the end of the line what's more realistic right yeah. so i think if you want to survive you have to innovate but sometimes well maybe you just got to make the best of the time you have <laughs> <laughs> this is not a very popular standpoint but i think it's a realistic one mm -hmm. and um also really curious because this year the financial times acquired a major stake in mm -hmm. company so what kind of challenges are you personally going through as a result of that i think for me personally it's like you you could say it's it's only on paper that there's a change right mm -hmm. so the difference between me and my co-founder having the majority of the shares and another company having the majority of the shares is very small mm -hmm. like it doesn't really matter but of course inside your minds it does matter mm -hmm. right there is a difference and i was aware of that before we started i'm like this will be something i have to yeah, accept accept yeah get used to so i i think the, the past few months were interesting because that's exactly what happened right so it was a very subtle thing in the background mm -hmm. but it was still there mm -hmm. right so and i had to slowly adjust to this feeling and think about like what is my role going to be in the future and i actually like it right so i i enjoy the perspective we have the, the job that i i'm going to have in the next few, few years it's it's truly exciting and and uh, so it's fine but it was also a process a very personal process right it's very difficult to share with other people or or to explain right because the like oh not a lot has changed right mm. no but still it's this subtle thing in the background and yeah. what's going on in your mind when you think about that that it's not to be underestimated mm -hmm. like even if it's just a feeling it's a it's a it's a very important distinction between like being completely in charge or realizing like well when it comes down to it you're not completely in charge because you don't have the majority of the shares right and and like that doesn't mean that that will actually cause problems but just like the feeling like i i have a friend and he like his father is from saudi arabia mm -hmm. his mother is uh, british and he just always thought like the world is your oyster i i could live anywhere but then at one point he tried to live in the us and they rejected him and he said no you can't live in the us and then from that moment he felt like my world is now smaller <laughs> yeah. right? and doesn't even really want to live in the us but just the fact that he can't is a, like a small difference and and we talked about this a few times because he's like there's so many other great countries where i can live yeah but the fact that i can't, can't. live there has impact <laughs> yeah. it took a few years to get used to that new reality 
And I understand that. I like mm-hmm. if you feel like, oh, I can go anywhere. No, well, actually, you can't. They're like, oh, well, I don't even want to go everywhere. But the fact that I can't, mm-hmm. yeah. And do you have the last key takeaway that you would like to share with us? Something that helps you grow personally? Well, of course, I, I already had the, the advice, like nobody else knows what they're doing either. Mm-hmm. So to just do it and to ignore my, my advice, it's difficult <laughs> to give advice. But uh, yeah, I learned one thing last week. So I spoke to a writer, uh, head of product at Facebook, and she said it's very difficult to be the best in one thing in the world, right? So that's just because, yeah, that's hard. <laughs> but if you have a few qualities and you combine those in a unique way, then you can actually be the best person in the world with those different qualities. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was very interesting. So mm-hmm. probably everybody will have like a few unique things mm-hmm. where you're like, well, I might not be, be the best drummer in the world. But I'm the best cook who can also drum with creative and can write. And that combination is mm-hmm. puts me in the top 100 or something like that, right? Okay. And I like that because I, I think like as a human, you're sort of a sum of qualities and talents. And yeah, that's like it's, it's great if you can find your competitive edge as an as a, as a individual. And I thought that was a great formula for helping you find it. Awesome. Thank you so much for your openness. And for everyone who's watching or listening, please make sure to check out Boris's LinkedIn page. I think he has some awesome articles there and also his newsletter where he shares his personal stories. And uh, make sure to tag us on Instagram or LinkedIn if you have any insights from this podcast episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you don't want to miss out on future episodes, please subscribe to the podcast on your preferred platform and be sure to leave a review on iTunes or Google Play. And check out the show notes for a deeper dive on what you heard today.